Hi, this is Julie Gray, and these are the true adventures of Gidon Lev, episode 13, Into the Dark. Gidon was sitting on his usual spot on the sofa, his hands folded over his lumpy belly, which had two grapefruit-sized bulges that strained his shirt and pants buttons. One was what remained of two hernia operations, and the other was where Gidon's urostomy was. I called it his porthole. Gidon lost his bladder and much of his urinary tract in 2011 when he had stage 4 bladder cancer. Now he had, as he put it, new plumbing. I frequently tell him he's a $6 million man. With some trepidation, I handed him the latest chapter of the book. I knew that the previous chapter had been hard on him. He misses Sue, so... But he had been such a trooper, reading chapters once, twice, three times, and adding his notes and thoughts, sometimes writing entirely new sections when he wasn't pleased with something he'd written earlier. He'd been getting better at feedback, finally learning to say something nice first and then point out what he didn't like. I had to wait to see what he would say about today's pages. Thanks, he said as I handed him the pages. You look funny, by the way. I knew I looked funny. I was wearing my goofy sun hat, complete with chin strap and a pedometer. I had reached the age of not caring how I looked, especially when I was trying to get 10,000 steps of fresh air and my body moving after hours of sitting. Reaching the age of not caring how funny you look is a wonderful thing. I headed out into the warm sunshine. Outside our building were old suitcases, dust, plaster, and piles of lumber that used to be cabinets. This is what remained of Maria, our upstairs neighbor. The workmen were mostly Palestinian and typically took the bus here from Ramallah. They were cheerful and hardworking. A few times a day I heard the call of the muezzin. One of the workmen had an app on his phone so he could be reminded of when to stop working and pray. This too, as Gidon would say, was Israel. Maria spoke Yiddish, Hebrew, and Polish, but very little English. She was a cheerful fixture of the building for the past 30 years, with the habit of sitting outside in her wheelchair with her Ukrainian caregiver, Natalie, enjoying the fresh air and saying hello to all who passed. One night, we heard a scream. Gidon and I ran to the front door and flung it open. From up the stairwell, the scream continued to echo. We ran up the two flights. Maria was on the floor, unconscious. Natalie was panicked. Guidon got down on his knees and gave Maria CPR. I had no idea he knew how to do this. I tried to calm Natalie, and I found a neighbor to help call an ambulance. Later, I tried to remember the exact moment that Maria died, but I couldn't quite tell. I just knew we were there when it happened, and it seemed like a privilege. I had no way of knowing if Maria heard our voices or felt me stroking her forehead. I didn't know if she knew it was Gidon, with whom she had long enjoyed chatting, who was pumping her chest to get her heart going again. Within minutes, the paramedics arrived and surrounded Maria with their beeping machines. But it was clear that it was too late. Gidon and I stood and watched, helplessly. That was a few months ago. 
Maria's death left a pall over both of us for some time. Guidon handed me a piece of paper on which he wrote further notes on Maria. Guidon felt, he added, while he was giving Maria CPR, that once she had closed her eyes, this was it. She was tired, she had a long life, and no amount of pressing would bring her back. She had had enough. She had said her goodbyes. She was at peace. A few minutes later, Guidon returned to my office. When I moved into the building, Maria was still driving, you know. She had a terrible time parking. He chuckled at the memory. She would get so frustrated, so I would help her. Guidon looked down at his feet. That was only four years ago. Oof. I wondered what it must feel like to be at Guidon's age when the death of even an acquaintance felt like was a premonition. Sometimes when Guidon sleeps, he goes completely still, and I touch him to make sure he's still breathing. I know that one day he won't be. I tell myself that this would be much better than long days suffering in a hospital or languishing in a nursing home with dementia. Then I tell myself not to be so morbid and to just be in this relationship, in this moment, and stop thinking about the end all the time. We talked about this when we first decided to be together, Gidon and I, the fact that he would have to leave me at some unknown point in time, that the length of our relationship already had an expiration date, a fact that we could not change. Gidon is unafraid of death, but what about me, I sometimes said with tears flowing down my cheeks. It's easy for Guidon to be in this relationship. When he gets ill and passes away, he will have been loved right up to the last minute. But I will have decades ahead without him. Perhaps Guidon is not frightened by the prospect of death because he's cheated it so many times. He survived a concentration camp and the diseases there. He survived the Six-Day War, the War of Attrition, and cancer, twice. In his paper-clipped early writings, there was a chapter called The Scourge of Cancer. First, it was Monty, Susan's dad, who died of pancreatic cancer in 1977, only seven years after coming to live in Israel. He did battle with this disease for an entire year, even returning to work and his beloved occupation, painting. But he finally succumbed right there on Yeshua Binai Street, fourth floor, with all of us there to say goodbye. Then Margie, Susan's mom, came down with breast cancer, refusing any kind of operation or other therapies. Just give me painkillers, she said to her doctor. She died in the fall of 1988. She waited for the holiday of Sukkot to be over. It was in our house, in Nazrat Elite, surrounded by her loving family, which by then had grown to seven souls. Next, my mother got colon cancer in 1992. She called the day before her surgery. We didn't know she was sick. I flew to her immediately to be there for the operation. Later, she moved to Israel. She died in 2003, having managed her stoma for 10 years. It took me many years to realize how difficult that is to do. Just a short while after my mother had her operation in 1992, I was found to have stage 4 colon cancer and went through an entire year 
of intravenous chemotherapy every two weeks in the Rambam Hospital in Haifa. For the first three, four days after the chemo, I would rest. I felt weak and suffered from nausea. I felt like doing nothing, even television I didn't want to watch. Slowly I would regain my strength and appetite. Then I would start my work for the next 10 days or so, doing the milk test program in the surrounding Moshavim, agricultural villages, with the help of my kids who worked with me and were a wonderful help. Just as I was feeling good and energetic again, back to the hospital for another treatment. The cycle started all over again. It was clear as the treatments continued and are cumulative that the side effects were more and more pronounced. Halfway through, I became disillusioned, to put it mildly, and considered the idea of stopping treatment altogether. To me, a year seemed a long time to bear this, and I was tired of it all. Susan, my sweet, dear wife, spent many an hour talking to me and helping me to get out of this depressed state. And so I gradually did. I continued the treatment for the rest of the year, even when I had to go to Canada for a month to help my mother sell her house, pack up and move to Israel. I simply took the medication with me and had my old family doctor arrange to have it done. Not by him, mind you. Doctors are really not that great at giving these kind of injections, but by a very experienced nurse at the Mount Sinai Hospital in Toronto. One interesting aspect, though, evolved over the years that this protocol that I was following for an entire year could have been done for just half a year, with, according to statistic and later research, the same results. Of course, there is no question that Sue's help and firm encouragement and the warmth of my children, too, helped me to overcome my depressed state. I continued the full protocol, and in the end, I was pronounced clear of cancer. Then, a month or two after my mother died in 2003, I was diagnosed with cancer again. I had what is called TCC, Transitional Cell Carcinoma, which my doctor, Basel Farhum from Nasrat, kept in check for seven years by performing a cystoscopy every three months. I had to stay in the hospital for two to three days for that. Sometimes it was painful, getting a spinal injection. And sometimes it was even funny, as I would lie there naked on the table. I remember once when an English nurse held my hand when I got the spinal injection. The nurses and staff got to know me. I became a fixture. You have to remember, I was there every three months for seven years. I could not imagine what this medical minefield would have cost Gidon in another country, or if it would have been possible for him to receive this care at all. In Israel, every citizen is entitled to health care services under the National Health Insurance Law, 
and it's illegal to deny this right based on pre-existing conditions or risks. So there's a silver lining in Guidon's painful medical odyssey. It was affordable and of some of the highest standards. But even so, the physical and psychological pain was, at times, almost unbearable. Finally, in 2010, the cancer penetrated into the wall of my bladder, blocking one of my kidneys. A few months later, I had a seven and a half hour surgery to remove my bladder. So here I was, the cancer man, and yet Susan, halfway through 2011, came down with lung cancer and died within a year. returned from my walk, which took me in a circuitous route through Ramat Gan, past the little shops and cafes, zigzagging through a park or two. I opened the door and Gidon looked up. I don't like this, he said testily. This was not like Gidon, this tone. There's not enough information here, he said. I made us both a cup of tea and we sat at our small kitchen table. Tell me, I said. When Guidon launches into a conversation that he's passionate about, he really launches. It's very difficult to stop the train. He started by giving me the names of specific doctors, the dates of various treatments, and the way the room was big or small. It became clear that Guidon had a lot of pent-up emotion about this terrible period in his life when he suffered from cancer. He shifted to the details of his treatment for bladder cancer, stressing his points carefully. I told Guidon that this long list of details might be too tedious for a reader to connect with. He was not satisfied. It seemed clear that Guidon was projecting onto me his frustration of being unable to convey the depth of his suffering with not just his own struggles with cancer, but the way it affected his family. There was something more going on here, though, something in between the lines, some enormous unresolved grief. I wanted to get to the bottom of it. Sensing an opening, I asked him to tell me more about Susan's struggle with cancer. When did she find out? What was the first diagnosis? Guidon's demeanor changed. No longer testy or demanding, he was just sad. He told me everything about that terrible year while Susan suffered. How at first the doctor thought Susan had pneumonia. The antibiotics didn't work because the diagnosis was incorrect, but nobody knew that yet. Tearfully, Guidon told me about how he and his sons helped Susan go to see her absolute favorite musician, Paul Simon, in his first live concert in Israel. She was so weak she needed help walking. Guidon told me about how every test, every doctor visit was marked by bad news, then promising news, then bad news again. He told me how Susan and he managed to go on a cruise in the Mediterranean to help a childhood friend suffering from multiple sclerosis enjoy one of her last wishes. It was the last vacation Guidon and Susan spent together before cancer completely took over their lives. The experimental treatment Sue tried was ineffective, and the usual treatments didn't work either. She grew weak. The cancer had spread from her lungs to her brain. She stopped cooking and reading. Susan was disappearing before the family's eyes. Guidon told me how his youngest, Asher, who had returned to Israel from abroad, spent hours at his mother's side, talking with her about everything under the sun, helping her cope. 
It was Usher who, together with Susan, chose the poems that would go in her book of poetry that the family so cherishes today. When Guidon twice struggled with his own cancer, even though he came close to wanting to just quit the fight, he was able to define his struggle, to contain it. He worked. He showed up for his treatments. He carried on. But when Susan got cancer, it was different. All the hard work in the world, planning and being a good supportive partner, did not stop the inexorable progress of cancer within Susan's body. There was no way to simply carry on. And that became clear only a few months after the initial diagnosis. I asked Guidon how Susan felt when the doctor told her and Guidon that nothing more could be done. She was quiet, he said. She only wanted no hospitalization and no pain. That made sense. I became quiet, too. I could tell this conversation had worn Guidon out, emotionally and physically. As cheerful as he usually is, he also has a deep well of grief. Later, Guidon handed me something he'd written about Susan. Quote, Guidon misses his partner of 40 years. Her photos, poems, and journals, and of course her spirit are the only things he has left. And the children. End quote. And my heart just broke. If you've enjoyed this episode, subscribe and follow for more. And don't forget to leave a review. If you'd like to read The True Adventures, it is available everywhere you buy books online. To learn more about Guidon Lev, go to www.thetrueadventures.com and be sure to follow Guidon on social media. Thanks to our sound designers, Andrew Macht and Victoria Sampson. Music composed by Nigel Groom and Adi Goldstein. Toda Rabah, Eliran, for being the voice of young Guidon.